Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Alan Cross. And this summer, we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode every Sunday from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of Alternative Rock. It's the History of Alt-Rock series. So every Sunday, you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of Alt-Rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the Ongoing History of New Music. All right, I'm going to need you to stay with me on this. You might think I'm going insane, but I'm not. Okay, here we go. You can start the music. One of the great indirect heroes of modern rock and roll was born on March 21st, 1865. Yes, 1865. His name was Brigadier General George Owen Squire. He was an army officer with a PhD in electrical science, and he had a thing for music. He invented the technology designed to compete with this new thing called radio. Wireless radio, he figured, was absolutely useless. It was prone to static, it was prone to fade-outs, and just didn't sound very good. His idea was to run wires into homes and businesses just like we have with cable TV today, or as they were beginning to do with telephones back then. And he called this concept wired radio. Just before he died, in 1934, he came up with a new name for his invention. Playing with the words music and Kodak, as in Kodak film, he came up with Muzak. Now, of course, the whole thing with wired radio really didn't take off with consumers, but businesses, surprisingly, were into it. Closed circuit music, specially tailored to their environment 24 hours a day without interruption or static, that's brilliant! And shopping malls and elevators haven't been the same since. Muzak became the world's biggest supplier of elevator music. So you're probably wondering where I'm going with this. Great question. By the 1970s, Muzak Corporation was earning more than $400 million a year by distributing this type of music all over the world from its headquarters in Seattle. It was used for crowd control, a management tool, and something to fill the empty silence of a department store or a dentist's office. In fact, for a time, Muzak executives thought that this was a really good unofficial slogan. Boring work is made less boring by boring music. Okay, are you bored yet? All right, let's, let's change up the music. 52 years after George Squire died, a new type of music started coming from the back room of Muzak headquarters in Seattle. But it wasn't exactly elevator music. The music came from the shipping room, where a Muzak employee named Bruce Pavitt 
spent his coffee breaks running a new independent record label devoted to the local music scene. In fact, Muzak's payroll supported at least half a dozen local musicians. And while no one could have possibly known where this was going to lead, this decidedly non-Muzak music these people were into would eventually change the world of rock and roll forever. This is the complete history of alt-rock, chapter 11. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and here on chapter 11 of the complete history of alt-rock, we're going to finally meet the alternative nation of the 1990s. And we're going to get into the revolution created by what became known as grunge. And we all know what grunge did and continues to do to music. But let's back up first. If you weren't into classic rock or hair metal, things were pretty dire for you as a rock fan at the end of the 1980s. But chances are you were okay with that because you didn't want any part of the mainstream. You were happy in your own little parallel universe populated with like-minded fans who reveled in the fact that you were all outsiders. Let the world have their Motley Crue and Van Hagar. We have our own private space. And our bands are way cooler and more interesting and authentic and accessible and blah, 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 blah. And it was true. Thanks to the alternative record labels in North America that we talked about in Chapter 8 and the indie labels in the UK that we heard about in Chapter 9, there was lots of non-mainstream music to go around. And thanks to college radio and a few adventurous commercial radio stations, word on this music spread just enough to keep this ecosystem alive. So who were the big stars of the day in the alternative world? Well, R.E.M. was probably the biggest. The Red Hot Chili Peppers weren't a cult band anymore. Sonic Youth was held in very high regard. And there were bands like Black Flag and Bad Religion that spread the gospel of hardcore by touring constantly. And then there was this weird Boston band called the Pixies. The Pixies with Debaser from their 1989 album entitled Doolittle. Now today, this is considered a classic of alt-rock. Back then, they couldn't find anyone in America to release it, so they had to go through 4AD, the British label which specialized in experimental and avant-garde post-punk. We met them in chapters 9 and 10. Now in the grand scheme of things, the Pixies didn't have a lot of fans. But there were a few key people who thought they were amazing. One of those people was Perry Farrell, the founder of a band called Jane's Addiction. Now, Jane's rose out of the same scuzzy Hollywood stew as Guns N' Roses, but they didn't sound anything like them. Yes, they were heavy and Led Zeppelin-esque at times, but there were big differences in both aesthetics and sensibilities. Perry had an epiphany, this profound revelatory moment at the 1990 Reading Festival in England. He saw 30,000 kids jumping up and down, screaming their brains out to debaser by the Pixies. And he was impressed. And he thought to himself, hey, why can't we replicate the UK festival experience in America? So when he got home, he got some management types and money men together and created an old style traveling caravan, just like they used to have in the 1960s. All the bands and the bill could maybe fill a club on their own, but all together, the theory went, maybe they could fill an arena or a stadium. They called the project Lollapalooza. No 
The first Lollapalooza tour started on July 18, 1991, and ended on August the 28th. It featured Jane's Addiction as the headliners, along with up-and-coming bands like Nine Inch Nails and the Rollins Band, along with Ice-T and Body Count and the Butthole Surfers and Susie and the Banshees and more. Now, I remember being given tickets by the local promoter with pleas to just get rid of them. It seemed that no one believed that Perry Farrell's idea was a good one. I mean, there just weren't enough people into this weird alternative scene to make it viable, right? Honestly, that was the buzz in the summer of 1991. But within a year, everything was different. The alternative nation was being born. More in a moment. The years 1990 and 1991 are absolutely crucial to the history of alt-rock. They are every bit as seismic as what we saw with the birth and rise of punk in 1976 and 1977. And again, we have to divide things between what was happening in North America versus what was going on in Britain. Let's start with a pivotal decision by Sonic Youth. By 1990, they were probably the most respected indie band in America. They were selling a decent number of records to their non-mainstream alt-rock constituency, but they were having a hard time making ends meet. And that's when they made the tough call of finally signing a major record deal. Now, Husker Du had done it, jumping from SST to Warner Brothers. REM had done it, and were filing off that treadmill of recording, touring, recording, touring, recording, touring. And weren't the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and the Clash all on major labels? And, and, and seriously, what could be more punk and more alternative than subverting the system from within? And so it came to pass that Sonic Youth signed with DGC, a subsidiary of Universal Records, much to the shock and horror of their indie constituency. I, I mean, after all, this was the label of Cher and Aerosmith. Had Sonic Youth, America's premier indie band and godlike purveyors of noise and feedback, sold out? Uh, no. Sonic Youth and Cool Thing from Goo, their major label debut, released on June 26th, 1990. And when it came out, it was scrutinized by the faithful for any sign that Sonic Youth had been tamed by the establishment. But the truth was that Goo was every bit as noisy and as non-mainstream as anything they had done up until that point. Here's Thurston Moore. We went to uh, DGC Records because... Well, we know we sort of wanted the security. We were able to sort of get we were, we were able to get healthcare, you know, by being on a major label. That was you know nobody really talks about that. We those those factors of security that like that. You know, it wasn't that big a paycheck at the time, but you know, it was it was significant to us. Uh, it it paled in comparison to what was being thrown at bands like two years later, especially after you know Nirvana's ascent. You know, it's like that. It really changed the game money wise, but we didn't have that access to that kind of you know, funny money when we signed. It was, we were still kind of like, well, should we do this? The thing with DGC is like, there was people who were working at major labels like that at that time in the late 80s who were coming out of college radio. Mm. And they, their influence of like, wanting to bring bands like us or Husker Du or, you know, Dinosaur Junior or whatever. R.E.M.? Yeah, but I mean, the late 80s, like bands like us signing to major labels, it was still kind of like an experiment to see like, well, can these bands actually serve do do business and of course Nirvana did business that was the first one that did anything mm -hmm. and it did it in such a 
such a big way, almost in a, in a thriller kind of way, that it, it kind of distorted the, the, the standard that should have existed in a way. Because it's like, okay, now everybody has to perform at that level. And this is like, well, that's impossible. Is it true that Nirvana ended up signing with DGC because you did? Um, I think when they were, when the guys at DGC went to sort of talk to them about uh, doing a record with them, we were, we had just signed, yeah. Mm. And we had toured with them and they were like, um, we said it was, you know, it seems pretty cool. The people there are cool. Ray Farrell from SST Records, who we were recording with, he's working there now. So it was kind of like this, you know, DGC, Geffen Records was kind of, at that time, was considered to be sort of a unicorn label amongst all the major labels there. They were kind of somewhat independent in a way. Ah, Nirvana, grunge, that whole thing. Let's go there because this is where things really get interesting. While Seattle is in the same time zone as Los Angeles, the city has little in common with the rest of the West Coast of the United States. It's not exactly isolated, but Seattle is just far enough away from other major American centers for it to develop a unique arts and culture scene. And this, of course, extended to the local rock and roll community. The locals consumed rock differently. If Iggy Pop was the godfather of punk and the Ramones were the Johnny Appleseeds of alt-rock, well then, Neil Young, a big favorite in Seattle, is the godfather of grunge. See, back in the 1970s, Neil Young went through this career phase that featured an obnoxiously overdriven guitar grinding under a simple melody. This calculated sloppiness had a certain appeal, especially for some reason, to the kids in Seattle. They also liked the other traditional hard rock of the day. There was Led Zeppelin and Kiss, ACDC, Black Sabbath, Judas Priest. And let's not forget that Jimi Hendrix was born in Seattle. Here's where it goes different. In the middle 80s, a series of homemade cassettes started being passed around amongst a few key people. They featured indie punk bands from other parts of the country. Dead Kennedys, Husker Du, Replacements, and of course, Sonic Youth. The popularity of these tapes and the presence of the indie-friendly universities and campus radio stations in the area made it worthwhile for many of these bands to make the trip up to Seattle to play gigs. And this filled the gap left by a lot of big mainstream acts who often considered Seattle to be too far out of the way to bother playing. This created a unique stew of influences. Hardcore punk and noisy indie mixed with Sabbath, Zeppelin, and Neil Young. No one considered it weird to be into both Black Flag and Aerosmith at the same time. And the result was a unique musical hybrid, the product of natural selection. It was rock that was sludgy and slow and low and often every bit as negative and pessimistic as some of the more nihilistic hardcore acts. And there was more. Some of the lyrics seemed... Uh, I don't know, more introspective than usual. Adding to everything was that the bands of the Pacific Northwest seemed to have their own look, but that was actually unintentional. Most of the members of the music community couldn't afford the cool new wave outfits or the spandex and big hair look of the big mainstream rock bands of the day. They had to settle for the functional logging industry clothing that they could find at their local thrift shops. But this emerging scene still didn't have that much of an identity. It was fractured, it was looking for focus. 
That came along in the fall of 1985, when several local bands contributed songs to a compilation called Deep Six. And although it took more than two years for all 2,000 copies to sell out, this was an important record. For the first time, the good people of the Pacific Northwest could hear what was happening in their region. One of the groups on the album was led by one of the people responsible for distributing those legendary homemade punk cassettes, Buzz Osborne and his band The Melvins. Other groups to appear on the Deep Six compilation included a new band called Soundgarden and a new band called Green River, featuring guitarist Jeff Ament, who would later go on to form a group called Pearl Jam. Another member of Green River was Mark Arm. Mark had a day job in that warehouse at Muzak Corporation. In the early 1980s, he wrote a letter to one of the local entertainment weeklies, and he described this band, a purely fictional band, as pure grunge. And this letter seems to be the first time anyone in the area referred to this new Seattle sound using the G word. Mark's buddy and co-worker at Muzak was Bruce Pavitt. He was also a big fan of the local music scene. In fact, he was so inspired by the Deep Six collection, he decided that he would do something similar. So he called up his dad and he said, um, Dad, can I have $20,000 to start an indie record label? He called his label Sub Pop and worked out a deal with a local recording studio. If anyone cool or interesting passed through the studio, they were to be referred to Sub Pop. The first thing the label did was release a collection called the Sub Pop 100 in July of 1986. The second release came in July 1987. It was an EP by Green River called Dry as a Bone. After that, Pavitt entered into a partnership with Jonathan Poneman, a concert promoter and sometime DJ at a nearby college radio station called KAOS, or Chaos. Although Sub Pop was terminally broke, the label nevertheless offered the Seattle underground some kind of cohesion. Local acts now had a way of releasing material without jeopardizing their hard-earned punk credentials. This included a Deep Six group who took their name from a sculpture on the shoreline of Lake Washington in Seattle. We've already talked about them. They were called Soundgarden. By the middle of 1988, Sub Pop was considered to be a pretty cool little label. The roster featured local groups like Soundgarden and Screaming Trees and Mud Honey. And as an added touch, the company started the Sub Pop Singles Club. For an annual fee, subscribers received a brand new limited edition 7-inch single in the mail every single month. The very first single of the month started arriving in mailboxes in November of 1988. It was from an obscure trio from the tiny logging town of Aberdeen, Washington. They were called Nirvana. Nirvana, featuring, of course, Kurt Cobain, a stoner and former janitor who was such a big fan of the Melvins that he's sometimes roadie for them for free. Now, of course, back then, you would never know that Nirvana would eventually be the savior of Sub Pop and that they'd change everything in rock. But that was still a few years off. Meanwhile, things were happening quickly in Seattle. Major record labels had heard about the developing scene and they were in town, snapping up some of the bigger bands. Alice in Chains, they were signed by Columbia. 
Soundgarden defected to a major. And then there was the fallout from a band called Mother Love Bone. That story in a moment. Welcome back to Chapter 11 of The Complete History of Alt-Rock. We're in 1990 now, and local Seattle heroes Mother Love Bone is about to release a debut album called Apple. Three weeks before it comes out, singer Andrew Wood dies of a heroin overdose. Some of the surviving members of Mother Love Bone got together with friends from Soundgarden and a few other local musicians to record an album in Andrew's memory. They called their Seattle group Temple of the Dog. Temple of the Dog and Hunger Strike from their one and only album from 1990. Monstrously important record. Most of the musicians who took part in the Temple of the Dog sessions really had a good time hanging out. And when the record was finished, Mother Love Bone's bassist and guitarist decided to stick together. Jeff Ammons and Stone Gossard were joined by guitarist Mike McCready, a veteran of several small Seattle groups. And for a singer, they chose this skinny surfer dude who had moved up from San Diego to do background vocals on the Temple of the Dog record. His name was Eddie Vedder. And the result, of course, was Pearl Jam. Meanwhile, Nirvana was getting all kinds of attention. In June of 1990, they recorded Bleach, their first album for Sub Pop. Total cost to make? $606.17. By October of 1990, they had finally settled on a drummer, this kid from D.C. named Dave Grohl. Now, of course, Sub Pop had high hopes for Nirvana, but they were too broke to keep the band happy. So on January 4th, 1991, it was announced that Nirvana had signed a contract with DGC. Now, why DGC? Well, like Thurston Moore said, it was because Sonic Youth had chosen that company as their major label home. And to Kurt Cobain, if it was good enough for Sonic Youth, well, then it was good enough for him. The next nine months were spent working on a new album with producer Butch Vig. And on September the 24th of 1991, exactly 46,251 copies were sent to record stores. It was decided that track one would be the first single, a song that would kind of soften people up for what was going to be the real hit from the album, which was track three. However, it didn't quite work out as planned. That throwaway first single ended up, um, well, you know. Released to radio on August 27, 1991, and on album to everyone on September the 24th, 1991, Smells Like Teen Spirit. The album, of course, was Nevermind. The band was hoping to sell maybe 200,000 copies total? Yeah. By Christmas, the album was selling 300,000 copies a week. It took just 65 days to sell its first million. 41 days after that, the two millionth copy was sold. It would stay on the Billboard charts for 92 uninterrupted weeks. Gross revenues from just that one record? Somewhere north of $100 million. Everything that had been building through the 1980s as far as indie and alternative and underground was concerned exploded with this record. Nirvana was the right band with the right sound at the right time. Nevermind was a refinement of the music first made by bands like Husker Du and Sonic Youth. But the band's sound was also influenced by groups like Kiss and Black Sabbath and the Beatles. Nevermind was one of the first alternative records that worked on the radio and on MTV. And as a result, 
Nirvana became this bridge that linked the underground and alternative scenes with the mainstream. But we have to ask, how did this unknown cult band from nowhere, Washington, suddenly become not only one of the biggest bands in the world, but also one of the most important in the history of rock? Well, that is a fabulous artistic, economic, demographic, and sociological question. And it begins with Generation X. See, when Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and their grunge brethren appeared in the early 1990s, there was this absolutely brutal recession. Much of Gen X was overeducated and underemployed. There was a real concern amongst the members of Generation X that they would not be able to achieve a standard of living equal to or better than their parents. They were disillusioned, they were jaded, they were angry, and more than a little scared about their future. We had Gulf War number one. Crazy Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait and was threatened to do more damage. But George Bush Sr. and the rest of his coalition waded into the Middle East and stomped him using a lot of young American men, many of them Gen Xers who could only find work by joining the army. Oh, and speaking of presidents, we were into the third consecutive term of a Republican president. George H. Bush had followed two terms of Ronald Reagan, a guy who wasn't really that popular with young people. And if you match up history with politics, you'll see that whenever there's a Republican in the White House, music tends to turn heavier, angrier, and more rocky. Gen X was certainly more than happy to make and listen to that kind of music. Now let's look at demographics. Gen X was coming of age, musically. They were in that sweet spot age range of 15 to 25. The time in our lives when music seems to be one of the most defining things of our being. Gen X was not interested in what their parents or their older brothers or sisters were into. It was especially galling to them that the late 80s had featured one long parade of classic rock bands in the second act of their careers, touring behind new albums that nobody cared about. Lots of Van Halen, lots of Aerosmith, lots of Leonard Skinner, lots of Elton John, that kind of stuff. Gen X was not going to buy into this. They wanted music of their own, music by their own people that dealt with their attitudes and issues. They were also not interested in the pop music that had dominated the latter half of the 80s. New Kids on the Block, Tiffany, Debbie Gibson, this was all meaningless, soulless crap. And they were not interested in the hair metal that had dominated rock for the last couple of years. The excess, the makeup, the costumes, and the endless stupid power ballads were considered inappropriate especially in time of war and recession. Gen X came to value authenticity, humbleness, and street cred in their bands. Their stars had to be anti-stars. Stardom was something that had to be shunned and avoided and downplayed. Slacker culture, with its strange mix of apathy and egalitarianism, took over. It was supposed to be about the people, about the fans, and about real, honest music. Bottom line? basically a return to the punk ethos of the 1970s when there were no barriers between the performer and the audience. It was music made by regular people for regular people. The fuse had been lit by the alt-rockers of the 1980s and Nirvana was just there when the explosion went off. And with impeccable punk rock credentials, Nirvana continued to enjoy the support of alternative music fans even after they went multi-platinum. Mainstream fans who had grown bored with the stagnant state of traditional rock also embraced them, and even casual music fans were caught up in the Nirvana phenomenon. By mid-October 1991, it was abundantly and absolutely clear 
that something special was happening in the U.S. Pacific Northwest. Everything was founded on essentially three albums by three different bands. Pearl Jam was the first to break out with the 10 album back at the end of August. Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger was released on October the 8th. And right in the middle, September 24th, was Nirvana Nevermind. This was exactly the boost for which the music industry was desperate. Like everything else, it was being hit by the recession. Grunge was just what it needed. Rock with loads of street cred and a consumer-friendly sound. Grunge became the commercial face of alternative music. In retrospect, this makes 1991 look like one of the greatest years in the history of rock. Well, maybe, but only in retrospect. In all honesty, we had no idea what was going on at the time, but within a year, not only was grunge a cultural phenomenon, but so was the whole notion of alternative music. Perry Farrell called it the alternative nation, and for the next five years, alt-rock ruled spread by the ideals of Lollapalooza and fueled by grunge at its core and sustained by all kinds of other music. Through grunge and grunge-like music, Gen X at large was introduced to industrial, goth, punk funk, jangle pop, hardcore, dream pop, alt folk, and a million other genres. There were clear parallels to the new wave era in the late 1970s and early 80s when the supply of cool, fresh bands seemed endless. And it seemed that every week brought a new band and a new album and a new sound that was just awesome. Things got so big that by 1994, alternative rock wasn't so much of an alternative anymore. It had supplanted the traditional players in rock and had become the mainstream. But that wasn't a problem for anyone, at least not yet. But I will tell you this, grunge and its cousins were certainly a problem for certain people in the UK. And this is where we're headed for on Chapter 12 of our Complete History of Alt-Rock. The middle of 1991 through the end of 1995 were some of the most interesting years in North American rock. Grunge opened up so many new avenues for so many different musicians and fans in so many places around the world. What's forgotten in all this is that some grunge bands, most notably Nirvana, were first championed not by Americans, but by the British. This, however, would not do. The Brits could not have the Yanks taking over their music scene. The Colonials would have to be repulsed and sent packing back across the Atlantic. And that would be done using something that would become known as Britpop. That's how we'll spend Chapter 12, The Complete History of Alt-Rock. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.